Five years after her body was discovered on a northern New South Wales beach, her family has faced the two men accused of causing her death in court. Dozens of relatives and friends attacked the accused after they were granted bail. Ruby Cornish reports. As Adrian Atwater emerged from Grafton Court, anger erupted into violence. His family and friends yelled and pushed the accused. sister Tina collapsed and needed medical attention. The other accused man, Paul Maris, returned to the safety of the building. His body was found on a beach near the town of Iluka in northern New South Wales in 2011. She was violently sexually assaulted and died from her injuries. His family and friends hope they're getting closer to answers. I just can't explain at the moment how I'm feeling, but it's just a relief to get things going and to know that we are finally going to get our justice. We've got to prepare ourselves again. But we won't be let down this time, hopefully. The two accused men sat in the public gallery of the small courtroom during their appearance. One of the accused wasn't recognised by his family, who were left unaware he was sitting close by. Both men appeared to show no emotion as they were granted bail. The men's addresses have been suppressed after the court heard they were concerned for their safety. Family members say they're now preparing for the case to be moved to Sydney. Ruby Cornish, ABC News, Grafton. Hi guys, welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Firstly, we just wanted to say Happy Easter. We hope you're all having an awesome holiday or long weekend and that you're eating lots and lots of chocolate. Before we get into this week's case, as always, we want to thank a few more of our Patreons. So a big thank you to Angela, Kylie, Spencer, Elizabeth, Belinda, Rebecca, Chicken Tenderloins, Morella, E.T. and Louise. Thanks, guys. Your support is much appreciated. Keep your eyes out this week for your Patreon-only episode about the 1993 murder of little James Bolger. With that said, I'll pass you over to Bill to tell you about this week's case. Before we start this week's case, I would like to give a disclaimer that we will be discussing the murder of an Indigenous person in this episode. Today's case is a bit of a different one for us, and while we will discuss it with the same respect we always do, it is important to let the details tell the story. This is a case that highlights injustices in our system in regards to both domestic violence and Indigenous people it will probably make you feel uncomfortable. In this case, a woman who was unable to make a rational decision for herself was taken advantage of and lost her life as a result. The perpetrator was her boyfriend and because she was an Indigenous Australian and had struggles with alcohol, the case did not receive the media attention it would have if it was a white middle-class woman. There's a real problem in Australia around classifying people by race or class, and this has become only more obvious to us when it comes to researching our cases. By far the easiest cases to research are the cases that involve middle-class, conventionally attractive white women or girls. This is the sad truth of the situation, and it does make it hard to cover the range of cases that we would like to, but it's not going to stop us from trying. Every victim deserves to have their story told, regardless of where they come from, their struggles or their race. 
According to the Australian Institute of Criminology, Indigenous people, which in Australia means Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islanders, are disproportionately victims of homicide in comparison to non-Indigenous Australians. While Indigenous people only make up approximately 3% of the Australian population, they make up approximately 13% of homicide victims in Australia. There are certain vulnerabilities amongst the Indigenous community that the victims may experience that make them more susceptible to crime, including substance abuse problems, a personal history of abuse, housing issues, mobility and social stresses. The majority of crimes committed against Indigenous Australians occur between family members in a domestic violence conflict. Today we will be discussing a disturbing case involving an Indigenous woman where the perpetrators were two white men. I also want to credit a WordPress blog called Counting the Women for a lot of the information that we're using today about this case. Counting the Women is a blog that reveals a lot of information about cases of violence against women by men in an attempt to shine a light on these underreported cases. Out of respect for the family of the victim, we will be using the pseudonym Norma to refer to her. However, it is not hard to find her real name with a Google search. Norma was 33 years of age when she died as a result of blood loss and hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock is a condition that occurs as a result of a person losing more than 20% of the blood in their body. This fluid loss makes it impossible for the heart to pump enough blood around the body and can quickly lead to organ failure. Without immediate emergency medical attention, the condition is fatal. In Norma's case, the blood loss came from blunt force trauma to her genital tract, which was exacerbated by extreme alcohol intoxication. This case took place on the 27th of January 2011, 15 kilometres north of Iluka, New South Wales. Norma was born in McLean, in New South Wales, along with her twin brother into a family of five. When she was nine years old, her parents separated and her mother ended up marrying her stepfather, who it seems she is still with to this day and has been vocal in advocating for justice in Norma's case. By all reports, she was a happy and healthy little girl. Things seemed to have become more challenging for Norma when she hit her mid-teens and went to Sydney to live with her biological father. So in 1992, when she was 15 years old, she moved to Sydney to live with him. And in 1994, at just 17 years of age, she was pregnant with her first child. In 1998, at 21 years of age, she was in a relationship marred with domestic violence. She ended up having three children with this man. Along with the intense domestic violence in this relationship, the couple was also drinking excessively. Norma ended up losing custody of her four children due to the domestic violence and alcohol abuse in the home, and custody was awarded to her mother and stepfather by the children's court. In 2000, she left that bad relationship and entered into an equally violent one with another man. They had a child together in 2001, and like the other four, that child also ended up in the care of her mother and stepfather. In 2006, Norma had two more children in a different domestic violence relationship, and her sister took custody of them. At 29 years old, 
Norma had experienced four separate domestic violence relationships and had eight children. We need to not judge Norma for this, as she was caught in a cycle of abusive relationships and addiction. In 2010, Norma's life was very unsettled. She had no permanent address to call home, and she was relying on alcohol and possibly drugs to cope. While she did not have custody of her children, it's reported that she loved them dearly and made efforts to visit with them whenever she could. Norma's mother had heard of both Adrian Atwater and Paul Maris in passing. Norma was in a relationship with Atwater and the day before her death told her sister she was going camping with both men for Australia Day. It was to be an opportunity to have drinks and camp on the beach. The trio was spotted on their way to their camping trip by multiple witnesses at Foodworks Supermarket in Iluka. One witness to the three was retiree named Brian Newton. He was parked outside the supermarket when he saw a four-wheel drive parked next to him with three occupants inside. There was a woman sitting between two men in the front of the four-wheel drive. The woman looked highly intoxicated. The male passenger called Brian over to the car and gestured towards Norma. Can you drop this thing down the road for us, please? A Foodworks employee would later give evidence that she saw the scruffy-looking Atwater thrusting against Norma in the biscuit aisle in the supermarket on Australia Day 2011. She stated, he was actually standing behind her doing sexual references and pushing himself against her. She remembers noticing how intoxicated the pair seemed and hoping that neither of them were driving as they left the supermarket. As they walked back to the four-wheel drive, the woman saw Atwater pull Norma's pants down to her knees twice. While they were walking back to the car, an acquaintance of the two men ran into the trio and they told him they were going up the beach camping, fishing and getting pissed. He remembered Norma as being extremely intoxicated and wearing only a bra and a pair of trackies. He would later say her eyes were glazed and her head was nodding eyes a little bit shut, she had a bit of a giggle every so often. Atwater disclosed to the acquaintance that they would be sleeping in the truck on the camping trip. The acquaintance asked, what, the three of you? Atwater replied, yeah, she's a trooper, patting Norma on the leg and winking. He then invited his acquaintance to join them for a drink, but his partner told him that that wouldn't be happening. The next day, on the 27th of January 2011, the three were on the beach camping and were extremely intoxicated. At some stage, Atwater engaged in some form of extreme sexual activity with Norma that caused her to bleed profusely. He stated that this sexual activity was consensual. The version of events given by each of the men over time would change considerably. Atwater stated that during the sexual activity, he placed his right hand inside Norma's vagina. Initially, he said his hand was clenched into a fist and referred to the act as fisting, although he denied that he did it roughly. He would say in an interview that it was not an unusual sexual act. When Maris was interviewed about what he saw, he reenacted the fisting motion to be almost as though Atwater was punching Norma inside her vagina. In later interviews, he would deny this, stating that he didn't see what had happened. Both men confirmed that they were both participating in sexual activity with Norma. 
At some stage during the activity, Atwater showed Maris a quantity of blood on his right hand. Reportedly at this stage, the sexual activity stopped. Please note that neither man seemed to state anything about what Norma was saying or feeling throughout the entire sex act, including when she was injured. They actually denied outright that Norma complained of injury or pain, which is an important thing to note. They stated that when the sexual activity stopped, Norma got out of the vehicle and went to the water to wash the blood from her thighs. They admit that at this point she was bleeding profusely. According to the men, she sat down on top of a large esky and when she got up, there was a large quantity of blood on the lid. They did not call for help. They just washed the blood away. Apparently at that point, they got back into the vehicle and moved further up north up the beach. What happened next differs depending on which man is reporting it. Maris said that Norma ceased to communicate from that point onwards. She was naked and passed out in the back of the vehicle. He says that when they got to the new area, it was just the men setting up while Norma continued to stay silent, lying in the back of the vehicle. Atwater says that Norma was speaking to them the whole time, talking, laughing and listening to music. While Maris stated that the two men had to lift her to move her to the front of the car, Atwater says that she jumped into the front by herself. Maris' description of the situation was as follows. She was still groggy and asleep. I'd say she was awake. I think she was conscious. I mean, she wouldn't have been able to sit there straight if she wasn't. She wasn't falling over or anything like that. At some stage, the two men decided to get rid of the foam mattress that Norma had been laying on due to the smell and large quantity of blood on it. They ended up burning the bedding, Norma's bra and some other items. They state that they did this before they realised that Norma was very unwell. This is another point to note. Apparently while Maris was burning these things, Atwater took Norma down to the water so the pair could clean themselves off. Atwater says that Norma was walking unassisted. After a few minutes, Norma reportedly had a seizure and collapsed into Atwater's arms. Maris ran down to assist and they noticed that she was not breathing and had no pulse. He called triple zero while Atwater attempted to do CPR. After calling the ambulance, Maris summoned a camper, Mr Miller, from a nearby campground for help. When he arrived at the scene, he saw Atwater giving a naked Norma CPR. He also noticed drag marks coming up from the water with footprints on either side and blood coming from Norma's pubic region. He saw burnt clothing partially covered in sand. Mr Miller stepped in to assist Atwater by giving Norma some chest compressions. He immediately noticed that her body was cold and she had no pulse. He noticed that below her feet lay a huge blood clot that was around 15 centimetres in diameter, which is enormous. That's like half of a 30 centimetre classroom ruler. When the ambulance operator arrived, Mr Miller informed them about his suspicions and suggested that they call police. He noticed that Maris had moved the four-wheel drive so that it was parked over the top of the burned items. When the paramedic asked Atwater what had happened, he said, We were out camping. We were having a wild sex session. I noticed the blood and the smell was terrible, so we were going in the ocean to wash off and she fell into my arms on the way to the ocean.
Police officers arrived and took note of the burnt materials under the car and blood all over the car and around Norma, including the large blood clot. Forensics arrived and took photos of the scene. An autopsy was conducted for Norma and they found severe internal injuries to the vagina and pelvic region. It was noted that the injuries were actually worse than those that occurred during a difficult childbirth. Injuries like these are associated with rapid and significant blood loss and can be very dangerous if not immediately surgically repaired. There was a jagged 45mm laceration just below Norma's clitoris. A laceration 120mm long on the left lateral vaginal wall near the cervix and heavy bruising along the right side of the vaginal wall. There was also numerous superficial wounds to the rest of Norma's body that were believed to be at least 24 hours old. The pathologist's opinion was that the injuries required moderate to severe force, causing tearing and or overstretching of the vaginal lining, more likely to be caused by fisting than any gentle hand motions. Norma's toxicology test results revealed that she had a blood alcohol level of 0.303, which is in the fatal range even for an alcoholic. There was also some methamphetamine in her system. The doctor also said, It is my view that the injuries to the vagina of Norma could not just have been caused by the action that Atwater described, and I am suspicious an act or acts of fisting occurred given the extent of the vaginal tears. However, I cannot prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. The injuries to the vagina would have to be caused by vigorous hand or finger movement in the vagina, causing splits or tear to the lining. When the case got to the coroner, the coroner concluded, I conclude that Mr Atwater's retraction of his admission to have inserted his fist into Norma's vagina should be rejected. I also reject as unreliable and self-serving his claim that the sex act engaged in on the night in question wasn't anything unusual. I am inclined to accept as accurate Mr. Mara's demonstration of a vigorous punching motion as the most likely explanation for the injuries having been sustained. He stated that Atwater didn't express that Norma gave consent for his actions. The coroner stated that due to the level of Norma's intoxication, she would not have had the capacity to give consent for her acts, so Atwater should never have interpreted her lack of resistance for consent. Three experts advised the coroner of the degree of pain Norma would have experienced from those injuries. Two stated that the internal injury would have been extremely painful, while the third thought that due to the lack of nerve tissues in the vagina, it may not have been that painful. However, all three doctors were in agreement that the external laceration would have been extremely painful and would have made walking or sitting extremely painful. The injuries would have begun bleeding profusely almost immediately. The coroner concluded that Norma would have felt a high degree of pain from these injuries and would have communicated this immediately. Even if both men thought the blood was from a menstrual period, there is no way that Norma would not have known that she was extremely injured. There was also no way that she would not have communicated this to the person responsible for causing it if she was conscious at the time. The coroner believed that both men were being dishonest in denying that there was such a complaint. The coroner believed that both men were being dishonest in denying that there was such a complaint 
out of fears for how it would reflect on their own character. Experts believed that Maris's story of Norma's decline was more in line with what they would expect after those injuries, although did not accept that she would be able to continue sexual activities after those injuries. The coroner also concluded that Maris and Atwater conspired together to burn the material from the back of the four-wheel drive out of fear and concern that it would be evidence against them in her death, which would explain why Maris parked over the top of it. The coroner stated, Norma did not lead an inspirational life of great achievement, but nor did she do harm to others. Indeed, it seems she was far more frequently the victim of mistreatment at the hands of those she should have been protected by. She was dearly loved by her family, and she returned this affection. I know she is sadly missed by her children, her siblings, her parents, and her extended family. I offer them all my sincere condolences. Following his findings, New South Wales coroner Michael Barnes recommended that charges should be laid against both men for the death of Norma. Both men had a callous disregard for her welfare. And Atwater, the man responsible for her death, failed to seek medical attention for her despite the fact that she was not in a position to obtain it for herself. It took three tries for the Department of Public Prosecution to take on the case. After a Four Corners TV show episode in May 2016 covered the story, the men were charged within a month. Her family was very relieved the opportunity for justice was finally within their view. They had felt powerless as her abusers, the men who allowed her to bleed to death, remained unpunished. In September 2016, the jury took all of 32 minutes to decide that the men were guilty of causing injuries to Norma and then covering up her death. Her friends and family cheered as Atwater, aged 43, was given a 19-year sentence with a non-parole period of 15 years and three months for manslaughter and aggravated sexual assault. Maris was given a nine-year sentence with a non-parole period of six years and nine months for aggravated sexual assault and hindering the collection of evidence. Spokesperson for the family, stepfather Gordon Davis, was grateful that they had finally received some public recognition of the pain the family had been through. He said, There will be no closure, but at least the court has ended. We know where they are now and we know they won't do it to anyone else. The Department of Public Prosecutions has a lot to learn about Aboriginality and Aboriginals. You can't sweep everything under the carpet the way it was dealt with. If it was two Aboriginal boys and they had done it to a non-Indigenous person, they would have been in jail ages ago. And that is the difference. I don't care how much you sugarcoat it, that is the difference. Once the sentencing was complete, Prosecutor Lloyd Babb SC issued a public apology to Norma's family. This is an extremely sad case, and sadly, it is not a rare or isolated incident. Although we may not hear a lot about the murder of Indigenous Australians, it is far more common than we think. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. Please join us again next week, and until then, please stay safe.